passages that we're going to be dealing with. Let me just say to you that everything that I say up until the time that we start to exposit the verses today is hopefully all going to be in relation to those verses. So let's all stay on track with that. But although we're going to be reading this text now, we're not going to be dealing with this text for just a few minutes. Okay, John chapter six, verse twenty two. And I think we're going to be able to get to verse twenty nine this morning. Let's go. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the boat, the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill, the loaves do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you for on him. God, the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we be? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. Amen. <clears throat> the last time that we were together, we, we learned a number of things, did we not? We learned that Jesus sent his disciples away from the crowds so that their idea of who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to accomplish would not be corrupted by the selfish thinking of the crowds. So he sends them away. The crowds wanted to, to crown Jesus as their new king. But why? Because Jesus had just given them food. Jesus sends his disciples away from the selfish crowd. And where does he send them? He sends them across the sea. And when they go across the sea, what do they find themselves in? In the middle of a storm. We learn that our peace does not come from, listen closely, our peace does not come from the absence of storms, but rather our peace comes from Christ. Amen. We don't take peace or joy or delight in the fact that there are no storms. Instead, we take peace and joy and delight in Christ and Christ alone. Our joy and peace are rooted in the perfect finished work of Christ who has become our peace offering. The peace offering that he offered up to God for what? For our reconciliation, for our forgiveness of sins and for ultimately our lives. That is where our peace lies. That is where our peace lies. I will say it again. That is where our peace lies. So the world can't take peace away from you because the world did not give you peace. That old song, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. We learned that God sends his own children into storms. God does not keep his children on the beach to play playfully on the shores of the beach or to splash about in the waves of comfort. Instead, he sends them into the storms. The Bible says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
Our peace is in the one who has overcome the tribulation. And why does he allow children or why does he allow trouble? Why would he allow his elect, his loved ones, the ones that are his very own? Why would he allow them to go through trouble and trials? Hebrews chapter 12, 6 tells us, for he disciplines the ones that he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. In other words, he disciplines you because you belong to him. He doesn't spank children that are not that are not his own, just as you should not spank children who are not your own. The scriptures go on to say that if he does not discipline you, then you are not his child. So praise God in the midst of a trial because he is treating you as his own. James gives us a perspective on this. James chapter one, verse two says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your faith is being tested for the producing of steadfastness. If there was no testing, then there would be no building up of steadfastness. If there was no weight lifting, you would not grow strong. As you can tell, I am. And let steadfast, James goes on to say, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So going through the trial is is God's way of sanctifying you or making you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you would think that the place that we want to be is in the trial rather than running from the trial or asking God, take it away, take it away. Instead, we would want to be in the midst of it because it is in the midst of the trial that we learn to cry out to Christ. It is in the midst of the trial that we learn to depend on Christ Isn't it funny how when there is no trial, we seem to depend on ourselves as if everything is fine and we don't necessarily need him as desperately as we do when we're in the trial. Some of you, he has to keep you there. Some of you, you don't know how to exist outside of the trial. When everything is good, you start to let your guard down. So what does he do? He keeps you there so that you will keep your armor on. Peter says in first Peter one six in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing of your genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it perishes, but is tested by fire. It may result in what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're being tested. For your growth, but ultimately for praise, glory and honor to God. Oh, it's about you. You're going through it. You're being sanctified. You're being more like him. But ultimately, the end result is praise, glory and honor to God. And that is exactly what Christ was teaching his disciples through the storm. That is exactly what the children of Israel failed to understand when they were wandering about in the promised land for 40 years. That our peace, our joy, our comfort, our satisfaction is found in none other than Christ alone. As we stated last time, Christ, he puts himself on display in one of the most incredible ways. Christ comes to his disciples in the storm. Walking on water. I can't explain that. I wish I could give you a clear understanding of how to do that. That's only something that Christ does. And he does this to put himself on display. As a matter of fact, there were two people who walked on the water that day. Jesus and Peter. 
But the question was that we had last time during the storm was, where's Jesus? While they are going through the storm, Jesus is on the mountainside. And what is he doing? He's praying. And what is he praying for? He's praying for them. That their faith would not fail them. Romans 8.34 says that even right now, he's still praying. And he's praying for you now. That your faith would not fail you. Christ calms the storm. He calms the winds. He calms the waves. And they are now back on the shore. Christ once again puts himself on display. We learn that we don't put our faith in circumstances. We put our faith in the one who is sovereign over those circumstances. And what was their response after this storm? Matthew 14 tells us that they bowed down and worshipped him. And that is the appropriate response for those who, when they go through trials and find out that God is sovereign over all of those trials, that our response should always be worship. But I say to you in warning, don't wait for the storm to worship. Hallelujah. Worship him in and out of the storm yes. so that you won't learn, have to learn how to when you get in. Yes, right. That's right. Amen. Now, as encouraging as I pray that sermon was last week, today we move forward into a portion of scripture that I know is not so encouraging. Why? Because the next 50 verses record a discourse between Jesus And the professing believers of God. Jesus and professing believers of God who are ultimately rejectors of Christ. Is it possible? Listen. Is it possible to believe in God and yet reject Christ? Think about that. We say about Muslims, they believe in God. We say about Hindus, they believe in God. We say about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and all other cults. They believe in God. But the question is, is it possible to believe in God and yet reject Christ? John chapter 5 verse 20 says, the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. Verse 23 says that we should honor the son just as we honor the father. Whoever does not honor the father, the Bible says, does not honor or whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father. So the answer is no. You cannot be a believer in God and a rejecter of Christ. If you reject Christ, you don't believe in God. And if you love God, then you accept Christ. Why? Because they are one. You can't have one without the other. This is exactly what is happening in the rest of this chapter. This chapter is dealing with the reality that there are true and false disciples. There are ones who faithfully endure and there are other ones who abandon the faith. There are ones who believe and there are the other who in the very end do not. This is what is displayed in this chapter. And it appears that the question to or it appears that to question the the legitimacy of one's profession of faith. Is not acceptable in today's world. Meaning this. You cannot call to question whether or not someone is saved. People say. What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? To question whether or not they're saved. You go to any funeral. They're all saved. And they all went to heaven. (laughs) 
even if their lives look nothing like the faith that they professed, you are reminded quickly that only God knows that person's heart. You don't know what's in their heart. You can't judge their heart. Isn't that what you know? Isn't that what you hear? I had a talk with a friend the other day, and it was concerning another person who, has, who is a professed believer in Christ, but yet produces no faith in their life, or produces no fruit in their life. This person is fruitless, passionless, heartless, unforgiving. My friend jokingly said, but I guess only God knows that person's heart. To which I responded, that person is showing everyone what's in their heart by their actions. I don't have to say I don't know your heart. I can see your heart by what you do. So when someone says you don't know that person's heart, you're right. I can see that person's heart. James said it this way. Show me your faith by what you say and I'll show you my faith by what I do. That apparently is wrong in this culture to do, though. Although it's completely permitted in Scripture, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, you're going to recognize true believers by their fruits. That's right. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? Unfortunately, the reality is this. There are people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and they are not. There are people who are not sitting in churches all across the world right now, and they will never sit in a church, and they are professing believers in God, and they think they're going to heaven. That's right. Sadly, there are people who are sitting in churches across the world right now who are also professing believers in Christ, and they too are not. Amen. How can I say that? What gives us the right Based on what we learn from Scripture and what we see in their lives. They prove that they are not by their lives. How many people do you work with? How many people do you know that say they believe in God, trust in Christ, but yet their mouths are sewers and gutters and their lives are lived no different than the devil? And you're going to tell me, who do I think I am for calling them into question? Who do you think you are for not calling it into question? You are looking at them with hate by allowing them to go on in their self-professed faith, knowing they're not true believers and not calling them on it. Ultimately, God, of course, is the judge. But I can go up to a tree and see if that's good fruit or bad fruit and know whether or not I should eat from it or not. If a tree is good, the fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. And people need to be warned about this obvious reality. And I cannot think of another chapter that draws this point out more than chapter 6 of the book of John. It is interesting that the Bible calls both kinds, both false followers and true followers, the Bible calls them both disciples. Whether they are true or false, Mathetes, which is a follower, which is a disciple, which is a learner, a student. They are both called Mathetes. Even though within the Mathetes, the followers, the disciples, there are true and false. They were following Jesus to learn from him. But in the end, 
we are going to see a clear distinction between true mathetes and false mathetes. What's the distinction? Listen, what's the difference between a true disciple and a false disciple? How can we know? Here's a, a, an initial knowing of how we can know. Go to chapter 6, verse 60. Look at this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. They were speaking about Jesus' sermon about being the bread of life. Now listen. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, listen, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. As you go on, look at verse 66. After this, look what happened. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the distinction. Here, listen, here it is. Initially, the false disciples could not accept what? His words. Initially, the false disciples could not accept his words. They were too much. They, from their own mouth, said that these sayings of Jesus were what? Too hard. This is a hard saying. And then they said, and following that, who can accept these hard sayings? Initially, they turned because of the hard sayings of Jesus. The false disciples want to believe that God loves them no matter what. And in the end, their good will outweigh their bad. False disciples believe there is something that they can do in order to gain their salvation, which is the context of these verses. They walked away because they were just told that there is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. This whole discourse of the bread of life was talking about you want life, you want bread. Guess who's the bread of life? Jesus, the response, this is too hard. Verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Response from Jesus. Verse 63, it is the spirit that gives life to flesh. Your own efforts, they will help you and not at all. Verse 65, 63, 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. The response of the crowd after verse after this, verse 66, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits you nothing. Okay, we're gone. That's what this is what's going on. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed in these verses. That is the reaction of every false follower of Christ. They are both following Christ. Both are called disciples. But some were true and some were false. But ultimately it came down to this. What Jesus said they could not accept. Within this passage... We see the very representation of what a false disciple is. Listen closely now. What do I mean by that? Jesus gives us the perfect, unperfect example 
of a person who names the name of Christ yet is not a true disciple. Look at what I'm talking about. Verse 70. After they said, where are we going to go? You're the one. Jesus said, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you was a devil. Huh. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve. He was going to betray him. Within this whole chapter, we see true and false disciples. And then, and then Christ gives you the prototype of a false disciple. Ladies and gentlemen, Judas Iscariot. One of you is going to betray me. You're all following me. You're all claiming my name. But one of you is a devil. And even though you're all here, not all of you belong to me. How sad is that? A, a, a true reality in mega churches or even in small churches, God forbid. That in mega thousands of churches, Jesus is saying the same very thing to them. You're here. You're naming my name. You're worshiping. You're involved in the whole thing. But one of you is a devil. The story of Judas is shocking. It's sad, but it's also sobering. Why? Because he spent three and a half years with Jesus this close. He is just one of 12 who had that privilege to be that close to Jesus. And in the very end, he's a devil. In the very end, he's an apostate. And it is no coincidence that Judas is placed within this chapter. Because he sums up what true, what false disciples really are. This whole chapter will describe selfish, faithless, greedy followers. And the chief example of all of them is Judas. Having seen Jesus... Put on display, walk on water, miracle after miracle. Listen to what he said. At the very end, he turns on him. Anyone who has heard, seen, known truth only to walk away is also a Judas. Lest we think there is some special place in hell just for Judas. No. You hear truth. You see the gospel at work and you turn your back on Christ. Welcome to the Judas fan club. You're its new member. Jesus knew these people. He knew that they would turn their backs on him. He knew why they would turn their backs on him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, people will turn their backs because of persecution. People will turn their backs because of the deceit of riches. Others will be lured away by the system of the world. Others will follow. But then they will turn away because they wanted an easier path than the rough path they're walking on. That's right. That's right. And then others would leave because they are unwilling to let go of relationships that were apparently more valuable than Christ. That's right. That's good. This is called the parable of the sower. And all of these are reasons why people turn to Christ, but all of these are not in play in this chapter. This chapter is more direct. These people do not turn away from Christ because of the things that they just mentioned. Sadly, but not shockingly, they turn away from Christ because of what he said. <laughs> they will end up turning from Jesus because they don't like what they heard. Which always makes me feel better about the lack of 
crowds lining up to get into this church. Because they don't like what he said. His words drove them out. And they came, they come from the sermon again, which is the sermon of the bread of life. His words drove them out. Ultimately, it was a condemnation. Their words, his words was a condemnation for their idea or their, or their belief in works, righteousness, religion. And the death that he would endure in order to provide or produce salvation. Why did they turn away? Here's why. Because of the gospel. Because he said, you can't save yourself. Salvation is only going to be found in me. They said, that's too hard. We're gone. What's the message that we present to people when we go out to the streets? Salvation is in Christ alone. They rejected the gospel. They were warned. Believe and you will have life. Reject and you will have no life. They rejected. Sadly, many of them turned away. Listen to this. They didn't become atheists. And they didn't become agnostic per, per se. They were just going back to their religion. They were going away from truth back to a religion that made them feel more comfortable and more good about themselves, thinking, hey, I'm doing all these works, therefore it's good enough to please God. That's right. That's the gospel is an, is an offense. Right. The gospel is a stumbling block. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's right. That's right. Now, let's get into this passage. John chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus just walked on water, calmed the wind, calmed the waves. The boat that was in the middle of the sea is immediately at the shore. Matthew 14 tells us they worship Jesus. They, they witness his divine power. The crowd had been fed. They also witnessed the divine power of Jesus, but they did not respond as the disciples had responded. Instead, they responded with selfishness and greed. Verse 22, on the next day. That, rem that crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples gone away, had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Here is John is presenting the day after the storm. The, sh the scene, it shifts back to the east side of the lake or the shore of the sea. We see that the entire crowd did not go away, though. They were dismissed, but the entire crowd did not go away. At least part of that crowd who witnessed the miracle of Christ, they stayed behind. They spent the night at that place until the following morning. But why did they do that? Because dinner wasn't good enough. They were going to need breakfast. So they stayed there. When morning came, they got up. What are they looking for? The chef. They're looking for the chef. Where is Chef Jesus? They're looking for another free meal. But as they looked for Jesus, they began to realize something strange happened. Now, here's, here's an interesting twist that you could read right through. They remembered there had not been another small boat there the previous day, except for the one boat the disciples had used. They also knew that Jesus did not enter the boat with the disciples, that he went away alone. They watched this whole thing go on. So the question they have is, where's Jesus? They did not know that Jesus did actually arrive with his disciples. 
How did he do that? He just walked across the sea to get to them. That's it. So when they see the boat on the other side, they go, okay, well, the disciples, but not Jesus, because he didn't come with them. Which is why in verse 25, they ask, when did you get here? Right? Verse 23 says, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, there's a few reasons for, for other boats from Tiberias coming. It may be that these boats were water taxis coming to pick up people, take them to work, whatever. It may be that this boat, these boats were coming to pick up friends. It also may be that these boats are coming because other people had told them, we just had bread and fish, all that we can eat, and it was the best we've ever had. I'm going to go with the latter. Now boats are flocking in from Tiberias, and what are they doing? They're coming for Jesus. Man, you should have tasted that fish. You should have tasted that bread. It was. Can you imagine? Okay. And can you imagine people on the other side saying, word, let's go get some, right? So they're all coming. And I, I, I'm making this assumption because of verse 24, which says, so when the crowds saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, what are they looking for? The boats are coming. The crowds are saying, where's Jesus? Okay. They themselves, what do they do? Get into boats, got into boats. And went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. The crowds are so frantically looking for Jesus that they are willing to go to the extreme of getting into boats and saying, let's go across the ocean or the sea and let's find him. That is the extreme that they're going to. Now, I don't know how many people that is, but the Bible does. John emphasizes crowds. Whenever there's crowds, that's a multitude of people. Crowds are still coming. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi. When did you come here? I, there's, there's a lot of different implications that we can have. But they cross the sea. They find Jesus. And they address him first as rabbi. They are about to. They acknowledge him as teacher. But they're about to dispute his teachings. They're calling him rabbi. Teacher. And they are about to question and dispute his teachings. They knew that Jesus did not leave on the boat. But here's an interesting thing that when they say, where did you come from? When did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you for on him. God, the father has set his seal. They asked him, where did you come from? Notice that Jesus did not tell him the sermon that I just taught you last week. So let me explain to you. So the boat was rocking. He didn't do any of that stuff. Instead, Jesus says, I know why you're following me. And your question that you just asked is irrelevant. There's a deeper issue. Your sinful motives are the bigger issue. And then he says, amen, amen. Truly, truly. This was always introduced as something he really wants you to pay attention to. And here's the rebuke. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So what does he do? Essentially... He does a mortal combat on them. He takes out their heart and he places it bare before them, showing them what? That their materialism is laid bare before them. Their greed is laid bare before them. Their selfishness is laid bare before them. Jesus says to them, you are so blinded by your own superficial desire for earthly food that you are missing 
the true spiritual food that will really give you life. You ate yesterday and that was good. You ate yesterday and that was enjoyable. But there is a spiritual food that is everlasting. That's standing right in front of you. That if you eat of it, you will never go hungry. And you're still looking for bread. Leon Morris says they were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. They saw the signs that Jesus had performed, but failed to see the significance of who those signs again pointed to. You are seeing these signs, but you are missing that they are pointing to my deity. And all you care about is eating. They were the one. He was the one that they've all been waiting for. He was the Messiah. He was the son of God. He is, was. But yet they were overlooking all of those eternal truths. For bread and for fish. This is the reason for which false disciples. This is the reason for which false disciples believe that Jesus exists. What do I mean? I mean this. They believe that Jesus exists to fulfill their selfish desires. I heard a song on the radio the other day that I've, I've heard time and time again. But because of this sermon, I began to really listen to this song. And it was weird because it was just going. And then I started to listen and I started to realize that this song has a lot of application to what we're talking about today. I'm not going to read to you the lyrics. You might know the song. But in the song, the singer is essentially speaking about three or four different stories or scenarios in which unbelievers are in incredibly difficult situations and although they are unbelievers and although they've never acknowledged their sin or their need for a savior or even a savior from the wrath of God they simply tell God God I need a miracle and I need you to come through and what does God do God gives them a miracle and now they're happy and now their salvation or so-called salvation or so-called belief in God is built on the fact that whenever I rub the bottle, God comes out and gives me what I want. La, 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 You know that song. Whoa. Listen to it. You hear it? Now that may not sound, that may sound like the normal way. But that's not the way that God draws his people by giving them a little snack and saying now do you like me and what does it do that song and there's many like it I started listening but that song begins to feed the mindset that God is there simply to give us what we want and then we'll be happy and what does that imply that God is simply there for us to give us what we want and what does that imply that God is desperately willing to give us whatever we want so that we will be happy and like him and what does that imply that in some sick way God needs us In some sick, twisted way, God is, 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 is giving us what we want so that we'll eventually say, okay, I like you. And we shake our heads and we say no. But what is the percentage of your prayer about when you pray? It is about... God, I glorify you and make me more like you. Or does the portion bulk of your prayer consist of, God, give me, give me, give me. 
How many times have you prayed to God and not asked Him for anything except for Him? It's kind of cliche now, but it's been said time and time again. If you could go to heaven and have everything you want, but Christ not be there, would you still want to go? Sadly, many people pause and say, I don't know. Or will say no, simply because it's a spiritual thing to say. But their lives reflect the opposite. That is not the God of our Bible. God does not need us. God is not desperate for us. We need God. We are sinful people and we desperately need Him. False disciples are seekers of personal fulfillment. They want their personal needs met and they could care less about a holy God. They could care less about worshiping with all their heart, minds and souls and strength. They want Jesus to give them what they want. And that's still going on today. Jesus is being offered as one who gives you what you want. Jesus is the one who fixes everything for you. And it will give you every desire of your sinful little heart. The crowds come because they're being offered Jesus in a bottle. They obviously, people will obviously say, not that in that way, but they'll say this. Do you need? Ask Jesus. They're not going to say, hey, he's a genie in a bottle. Instead, they're going to say, do you need? Ask. And usually those needs are selfish and self-seeking. I was speaking to someone the other day, and I was explaining to them that material things are no longer at the forefront of emergent modern churches today because it's too obvious. We, we've caught on to that game. We, we understand it's not about the money and the things anymore. So what they've done is they, they've twisted it by saying, we're going to make it about relationships, events, and entertainment. So the, the modern emergent churches today are no longer about get stuff. Instead, they're about create relationships and be entertained when you come to church and make church more like the marketplace rather than a place of worship. So people, when they come to churches, especially younger people, are looking for a place that is very modern. Do you have a coffee shop? Is there a smoking section? Is there a place that we can lounge? Are there couches? Are there big TVs? Instead, is the word of God preached and is God worshipped there? That's right. There's been a, 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 a paradigm shift in why we come to church. I was reading the other day. As a matter of fact, I, 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 I won't say the name, but no, I'm going to say the name. There's a new church. I'm sorry for those of you who know anybody who goes there, but I don't really care. It's called. Um, forget it. I don't know the name of it any, anymore. <laughs> but when I remember it, I'll say it. We've made idols out of ourselves that we want churches to to know how to come in and just have a good time. That's what it's all about. We're going to make sure that when you leave, you had fun, you enjoyed yourself because we want people to know you can have fun at church. Is that the purpose of church? This is the purpose of, of the gathering of the saints? Fun. How do you spell church? F-U-N. That's not. And, and here's why people are not flocking to little churches like this, because the word of God is being preached. Because sin is not being uh, winked at. Instead, sin is being called sin. The word of God is being declared as the word of God. So what do these, these modern churches do? They, they get together. They sit around. Here's what they do. They sit around with creative teams. They actually have 
creative teams. That may not bother you. It may not worry you. I don't see creative team anywhere in the Bible. I see elders and deacons. Instead, we have a creative team. And the purpose of the creative team is to see how creative we can be to get people in the building. Not gospel. Not how can we be more biblical. Not how can we proclaim this word. Not how can we raise up more disciples to teach the word of God. Instead, how can we be more creative, more modern, more fast, more slick, more sexy? How can we be more appealing? Well, I will tell you if that's your goal, you are going to get a lot of people there. If that's what you want. Uh, 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 discovery. Discovery Church. I journey. Mission. Discovery. Anyways, um, this stuff's going on in my head. Uh, that's a scary thought. And here's the thing. That's reflective of the modern churches today. And it's scary. Because that's where the, the church is going. And here's the other thing that's scary. Your flesh wants that. Our flesh wants that. We want that. That sounds fun. It sounds exciting. You mean to tell me I can go from going to the little dollar theater to the IMAX? No, I'm telling you, this is the IMAX. And that's the dollar theater. Because word gospel is being preached here. Jesus goes on to say, Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you for on him. God has set his seal. Don't don't miss this. Here we go. Stop it. Stop. Jesus is saying to them, stop it. Stop your selfish seeking. Stop your selfish pursuits. Stop with your money. Stop with your clothes. Stop with your things. Stop. With the food. Because that's all you're looking at me. You're looking at me like I'm a hamburger right now. Stop it. Jesus is saying to them, get your minds off of food. There's someone, someone much greater. And that food does not perish. More satisfying. And the satisfaction is eternal. I know what's in your hearts. I know what you want, and he's telling them, and I'm telling you to stop. You want bread? Verse 35, I'm the bread of life. You want to be satisfied? Verse 31, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. How much better can you get? Stop thinking about these earthly things. Set your minds on the one that has come before you, and don't ignore the signs. Verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Of course he's speaking about himself. Think about this. And it's just like Jesus. That in his grace, he's looking at this selfish crowd that only wants him for selfish reasons. And this is what he does. He tells them, knowing their desires, knowing their wants, knowing what they think they need. He tells them graciously, compassionately, lovingly. I'm what you're looking for. Would you do that if someone was trying to take advantage of you? Would you be gracious toward them and say, but I know what you need? No. When someone's t- trying to take advantage of, th- of us, we run from them. 
We hide from them. We keep far away from them. Instead, Christ says, but come near to me and I'll give you real life. Watch what he says. He goes on to say, verse 21, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, the father has said, you want life, you want true satisfaction, you want true fulfillment. Then come, come to Christ and let him be the satisfaction of your soul. You want true life Then come to Christ because he alone will give you peace with God through his sacrificial death. You want real satisfaction Then come to Christ and have your sins, though they are scarlet, washed white as snow. Come to Christ that you will know him and have eternal life. What is he doing? He's offering them the gospel again. To this dead, selfish, sinful, greedy crowd, he offers them peace with God. Isn't that just like him? Then they said to him, look at the response. What must we do? Listen, to be doing the works of God. Imagine when Jesus, you faithless people, how long am I going to be with you? He goes on right over their head. Everything that he just said, everything he's talking about concerning salvation. Now they want to know, Okay, so what do I got to do? How much does it cost? Isn't that just like humanity to think that there is something that we can do to save ourselves? Here, Christ is offering free, free grace and to free grace. They say, Okay, how much? Tell me how much I got. Let me see if I can pay. How stupid is that? Someone says free cookies and you walk up to them and say, how much? No, it's blind and it's darkness because their hearts are hardened to truth. Jesus answered them and said, the work of God. Here it is that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Here's what you can do. Here's what it cost. Nothing. Here's what you have to do. Believe. Here's what you get. Grace. And you cannot pay it back. And you cannot earn it. Here's what you do. You want to know what, to, what, what work to do? Believe. Believe. Like, remember Bruce Lee? Think. Or, or, or yeah, think. Don't feel. Okay, anyways. End of the dragon. Believe. Believe. There's nothing that you can do. Believe. Faith in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, Ephesians 2 8. Through faith alone, Romans 3 28. In Christ alone, Acts 4 12. Because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God, Romans 3 20. Salvation is the gift of God, John 4 10. Therefore, salvation does not come from human effort, human achievement, moral works, but from the faith in God. That will always produce good works. Without these elements, my brothers and sisters, there is no salvation. What have you trusted in today? In whom have you trusted in today? The response of the people after this statement is this. Show us a sign. Prove it. What is your response today? As Christ offers himself, will you say to him, prove it? Or will you trust that he has? And will you trust that he has accomplished that which you could not accomplish?
as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning? Which one are you? The Bible says that you are to examine yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. Where are you? What would your heart say or show if Christ was to pull it out and show it before you? Would there be a stone that he pulled out or would there be a heart of flesh that is beating for the glory of God? say to you this morning that if you belong to him this sermon does not only make you sad for false disciples it also makes you cautious and careful that when you stand before God that he examines you and that you do not look like one of these who come to him for only selfish gain so as we partake this morning and celebrate the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Redemption accomplished. Redemption celebrated. And redemption looking forward to, to when it is consummated. Evaluate and examine yourself. When you hold the elements in your hand, I ask that you ask the Lord, examine my heart, Lord. Show me myself. And bring all of your shortcomings to Him, knowing that He is able that he is able to forgive you. Can you put on a song of worship, please?